Chapter Seventeen, Part Two of *The Swiss Family Robinson*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Swiss Family Robinson* by Johann R. Wies. Chapter Seventeen, Part Two. Fritz, after a few moments' hesitation, began. Perhaps you remember," said he. How, when I returned from my expedition in the kayak the other day, I struck down an albatross. None but my father at the time knew, however, what became of the wounded bird, or even thought more about it. Yet it was that albatross who brought me notice of the shipwrecked stranger, and he too, I determined, should carry back a message to cheer and encourage the sender. I first, as you know, prepared my kayak to carry two persons. And then, with a heart full of hope and trust, left you and the yacht, and, with pounce seated before me, made for the open sea. For several hours I paddled steadily on till the wind freshening, I thought it advisable to keep in nearer shore, that should a regular storm arise, I might find some sheltered bay in which to weather it. It was well I did so, for scarcely had I reached a quiet cove which promised to afford me the protection I desired. Than the sea appeared one mass of foam, great surging waves arose, and even in the comparative calm of the bay, I felt that I was in some danger. I passed the night in my kayak, and next morning, after a frugal meal of pemmican and a draught of water from my flask, once more ventured forth. The wind had subsided, and the sea was tolerably smooth. And keeping my eyes busily employed in seeking in every direction to detect. If possible, the slightest trace of smoke or other sign of human life, I paddled on till noon. The aspect of the coast now began to change. The shores were sandy, while further inland lay dense forests, from whose gloomy depths I could ever and anon hear the fierce roar of beasts of prey, the yell of apes, the fiendish laugh of the hyena, or the despairing death cry of a hapless deer. Seldom have I experienced a greater feeling of solitude than while listening to these strange sounds, and knowing that I, in this frail canoe, was the only human being near. Giving myself up to contemplation, I rested on my paddle and allowed my kayak to drift slowly on. As I neared the shore, I noticed a large number of stranger-looking birds, who would sometimes flutter round me and then dart back again to the border of the forest. Where they were feeding on what appeared to be the pepper plant, they seized the berries in their great ponderous beaks, threw them up in the air, and then dexterously caught them in their fall. Their beaks were really something extraordinary. They looked as though they must give their owners a perpetual headache from their immense weight. The only thing that relieved the extreme ugliness of these great appendages was their gorgeous color, which was only rivaled by the gay hue of the plumage. I wished now that I had brought home a specimen, but at the time I was so much amused by watching the grotesque antics of the birds that I did not think of obtaining one. When I left the spot, I settled in my own mind that they were toucans. Was I right, Ernest? The professor, unwilling to interrupt the narrative, merely gave an oracular nod, and Fritz continued. For some hours after this, I paddled quickly on. Sometimes passing the mouth of a stream, sometimes that of a broad river. Had I been merely on an exploring expedition, I should have been tempted, doubtless, to cruise a little way up one of these pathways into the forest, 
but now such an idea did not enter my head. On, 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 I felt I must go, until I should reach the goal of my voyage. The shades of night at length drew on, and, finding a sheltered cove, I moored my kayak and stepped on shore. You may imagine how pleasant it was to stretch my legs, after sitting for so long in the cramped position which my kayak enforces. It would not do, however, to sleep on shore, so after preparing and enjoying my supper I returned on board, and there spent the night. Next morning Pounce and I again landed for breakfast. I lit my fire, and hung before it a plump young parrot to roast. As I was so doing I heard a slight rustle among the long grass behind me. I glanced round, and there, with glaring eyes, and his great tail swaying to and fro, I saw an immense tiger. In another moment his spring would have been made. I should have been no more, and our young guest would have been doomed to, God only knows how many years of frightful solitude. My gun was lying by my side. Before I could have stooped to pick it up, the monster would have seized me. Pounce saw and comprehended my danger. The heroic bird darted upon my enemy, and so blinded him with his flapping wings and the fierce blows of his beak, that his spring was checked, and I had time to recover my self-possession. I seized my gun and fired, and the brute, pierced to the heart, gave one spring, and then rolled over at my feet. My enemy was dead, but beside him, alas, lay poor Pounce, crushed and lifeless. One blow of the great beast's paw had struck him down, never to rise again. Fritz's voice shook as he came to this point, and, after remaining silent for a moment or two, he continued hurriedly. With a sad and desolate feeling at my heart, I buried the faithful bird where he had met his death, and then, unable longer to continue near the spot, I returned to my kayak, and, leaving the great tiger lying where he fell, paddled hastily away. My thoughts were gloomy. I felt as though, now that my companion was gone, I could no longer continue the voyage. The albatross, I thought, may have flown for hundreds of miles before it reached me. This stranger may be on different shores from these entirely. Every stroke of my paddle may be carrying me further from the blazing signal. Who knows? This feeling of discouragement was not, however, to be of long duration, for in a moment more a sight presented itself which banished all my doubts and fears, and raised me to the highest pitch of excitement. A high point of land lay before me. I rounded it, and beyond found a calm and pleasant bay, from whose curved and thickly wooded shores ran out a reef of rocks. From the point of this reef rose a column of smoke, steadily and clearly curling upward in the calm air. I could scarcely believe my senses, but stopped gazing at it, as though I were in a dream. Then, with throbbing pulse and giddy brain, I seized my paddle, and strained every nerve to reach it. A few strokes seemed to carry me across the bay, and, securing my canoe, I leaped upon the rock, on which the beacon was blazing, but not a sign of a human being could I see. I was about to shout, for as the fire had evidently been recently piled up, I knew the stranger could not be far off, but before I could do so I saw a slight figure passing along the chain of rocks toward the spot on which I stood. You may all imagine my sensations. I advanced a few paces, and then, mastering my emotion as best I could, 
I said in English, "'Welcome, fair stranger. God in his mercy has heard your call, and has sent me to your aid.' Miss Montrose came quickly forward. "'Who? What?' shouted the boys, interrupting the narrative. "'Who came forward?' And, amid a general hubbub, Ernest, rising and advancing to his brother, said in his quiet way, "'I did not like to make any remark till you actually let out the secret, Fritz, but we need no longer pretend not to see through the disguise of Edward Montrose.' Fritz, though much disconcerted by the discovery of the secret, recovered his self-possession, and, after bearing with perfect equanimity the jokes with which his brothers assailed him, joined in three cheers for their new sister, and when the confusion and laughter which ensued had subsided, continued his story. Miss Montrose grasped my hands warmly, and, guessing from my pronunciation, I am afraid, that I was not in the habit of speaking English every day of my life, said in French, "'Long, long have I waited since the bird returned with your message. Thank God you have come at last.' Then, with tears of joy and gratitude, she led me to the shore, where she had built a hut and a safe sleeping-place, like Falconhurst on a small scale, among the branches of a tree.' I was delighted with all she showed me, for indeed her hut and its fittings evinced no ordinary skill and ingenuity. Round the walls hung bows, arrows, lances, and bird-snares, while on her work-table, in boxes and cases, carved skilfully with a knife, were fish-hooks of mother-of-pearl, needles made from fish-bones, and bodkins from the beaks of birds, fishing-lines of all sorts, and knives and other tools. These latter, she told me, were, with a chest of wearing apparel, almost the only things washed ashore after the wreck, when three years ago she was cast alone upon this desolate coast. I marvelled more and more at the wonderful way in which this girl had surmounted obstacles, the quarter of which would completely have appalled the generality of her sex. The hut itself was a marvel of skill, Stout posts had been driven into the ground, with cross-pieces of bamboo, to form a framework. The walls had been woven with reeds, the roof thatched with palm-leaves, and the whole plastered smoothly with clay, an open space being left in the centre of the roof for a chimney to carry off the smoke of the fire. As we entered, a cormorant, with a cry of anger, flew from under the table toward me, and was about to attack me fiercely. Miss Montrose called it off, and she then told me she had captured and tamed the bird soon after first landing, and since that time had contrived to train it, to assist her in every conceivable way. It now not only was a pleasant companion, but brought her food of every description, fish, flesh, and fowl, for whether it dived into the waters, according to its natural habit, struck down birds upon the wing, or seized rabbits and other small animals upon the land, it laid all its booty at her feet. Before darkness closed in, all the curiosities and ingenious contrivances of the place had been displayed. The kitchen stove, cooking utensils, skin bottles, shell plates and spoons, the fishing raft, and numberless other things, and then, sitting down with my fair hostess to a most appetizing meal, she gave me a short account of her life. Jenny Montrose was the daughter of a British officer, who had served for many years in India, where she herself was born. 
at the early age of three years she lost her mother. After the death of his wife, all the colonel's love and care was centred upon his only child. Under his eye she was instructed in all the accomplishments suited to her sex, and from him she imbibed an ardent love of field sports. By the time she was seventeen, she was as much at home upon her horse in the field as in her father's drawing-room. Colonel Montrose now received orders to return home with his regiment, and as for certain reasons he did not wish her to accompany him in the ship with the troops, he obtained a passage for her on board a vessel which was about to sail at the same time. The separation was extremely painful to both the old soldier and his daughter, but there was no alternative. They parted, and Miss Montrose sailed in the Dorcas for England. A week after she had left Calcutta, a storm arose, and drove the vessel far out of her course. More bad weather ensued, and at length, leaks having been sprung in all directions, the crew were obliged to take to the boats. Jenny obtained a place in one of the largest of these. After enduring the perils of the sea for many days, land was sighted, and, the other boats having disappeared, an attempt was made to land. The boat was capsized, and Miss Montrose alone reached the shore. For a long time she lay upon the sand almost inanimate, but, reviving sufficiently to move, she at length obtained some shellfish, and by degrees recovered her strength. From that time forth until I appeared, she never set eyes upon a human being. To attract any passing vessel, and obtain assistance, however, she kept a beacon continually blazing at the end of the reef, and, with the same purpose in view, attached missives to the feet of any birds she could take alive in her snares. The albatross, she told me, she had kept for some time, and partially tamed, but, as it was in the habit of making long excursions on its own account, she conceived the idea of sending it also with a message, that, should it by chance be seen and taken alive, it might return with an answer. Our supper was over, and at length, both wearied out with the anxieties and excitement of the day, we retired to rest, she to her leafy bower, and I to sleep in the hut below. Next morning, having packed her belongings in the kayak, we both went on board, and, bidding adieu to her well-known bay, she took her seat before me, and I made for home. We should have reached Rockburg this evening had not an accident occurred to our skiff, and compelled us to put in at this island. The boat was scarcely repaired when I heard your first shots. I instantly disguised myself, and, never doubting that Malay pirates were near, came forth to reconnoitre. Glad indeed I was to find my fears ungrounded. All had listened attentively to Fritz's story, but now a dreadful yawn from Franz, followed by others from Jack, Ernest, and Fritz, and a great desire on my own part to follow their example, warned me that it was time to dismiss the party for the night. Fritz retired to his kayak, the boys and I to the deck of the yacht, and the remainder of the night passed quietly away. Next morning, as we assembled for breakfast, I took the opportunity of begging Miss Montrose no longer to attempt to continue her disguise, but to allow us to address her in her real character. Jenny smiled, for she had noticed, as the young men met her when she came from the cabin, a great alteration in their manner, and had at once seen that her secret was guessed. "'After all,' she said, 
I need not be ashamed of this attire. It has been my only costume for the last three years, and in any other I should have been unable to manage all the work which during that time has been necessary. Our pleasant meal over, I prepared to start for home, but Fritz reminded me of the cachalot, and although he confessed he should not care to repeat the operation of cutting up a whale, he thought it would be a pity to lose such a chance of obtaining a supply of spermaceti. I fully agreed with him, and, embarking, we quickly reached the sandbank on which the monster lay. No sooner did we come near than the dogs leaped ashore, and before we could follow rushed round to the other side of the great beast, snarling, growling, and howling ensued, and when we reached the spot we found a terrific combat going on. A troop of wolves were disputing fiercely with the dogs their right to the prey. Our appearance, however, quickly settled the matter. Two of the brutes already lay dead, and those that now escaped our guns galloped off. Among the pack were a few jackals, and no sooner did Coco catch sight of these, his relations, than, suddenly attracted by his instinct, he left his master's side, and in spite of our shouts and cries, joined them, and disappeared into the forest. As it would have been useless and dangerous to attempt to follow the deserter into the woods, we left him alone, trusting that he would return before we again embarked. Fritz then climbed up the mountain of flesh, and, with his hatchet, quickly laid open the huge skull. Jack and Franz joined him, Ernest having remained on the island where we had left the mother and Jenny, and with buckets assisted him to bail out the spermaceti. The few vessels we possessed were soon full, and having stored them in the yacht, we once more embarked, and arrived at the little island shortly before the dinner hour. A capital meal had been prepared for us, and, when we had made ourselves presentable, we sat down to it, and related our adventures. The account of Coco's desertion was received with exclamations of surprise and sorrow. "'Yet,' said Jenny, after a time, "'I do not think you should despair of his recovery, for animals in their native state seldom care to allow those that have been once domesticated to consort with them. My poor albatross, even, though he was never thoroughly tamed, and certainly did finally desert me, yet used to return at intervals, and I am pretty sure that were you, Jack, to search the wood early to-morrow morning, you would find your pet only too willing to come back to civilized life. Or, if you like, I will go myself and find him, for I should immensely like to have a paddle in the kayak all by myself. Jack was delighted at the former suggestion, and though he would not listen for a moment to Jenny's request to be allowed to go alone, he agreed, if she cared for the fun of an early cruise, to accompany her in the canoe next morning, and to return to the yacht in time to start for Rockburg. At sunrise they were off, armed with bait in the shape of meat and biscuit, and a muzzle and chain which Jack had manufactured in the evening, to punish the runagate for his offences, should they catch him. Arrived at the sandbank, they landed, and, after entering the forest and shouting, Coco! Coco! till the woods rang again, they presently espied the truant, slouching disconsolately toward them, looking very miserable and heartily ashamed of himself. With torn ears and coat ruffled and dirty, he sneaked up. There was no need to use the bait to entice him, and when the poor beast thus came, unhappy and begging forgiveness, 
Jack had not the heart to degrade him further with the muzzle and chain. He had evidently attempted to join his wild brethren, and by them had been scouted, worried, and hustled, as no true jackal, and, as Jenny had foretold, was now only too glad to return to bondage and to comfort. Poor Coco had recovered his spirits slightly by the time the yacht was reached, and after a hearty meal again took his place among the dogs, whom I had little doubt he would never again desert. All was now bustle and activity, and breakfast over we went aboard the yacht. Fritz and Jack stepped into the canoe, and we soon left Fair Isle and Pearl Bay far behind. The morning was delightful. The sea, excepting for the slight ripple raised by the gentle breeze wafting us homeward, was perfectly calm. Slowly and contentedly we glided on through the wonders of the splendid archway, threaded our passage among the rocks and shoals, and passed out to the open sea. So slowly did we make our way, that the occupants of the kayak announced that they could not wait for us when they had once piloted us out from among the shoals and reefs, and plied their paddles to such good purpose that they were soon out of sight. Nautilus Bay and Cape Pugnose were in due time past, however, and Shark Island hove in sight. With great astonishment, Jenny gazed at our watchtower, with its guard-house, the fierce-looking guns, and the waving flag upon the heights. We landed that she might visit the fortification, when we displayed all our arrangements with great pride. When they and the herd of lovely gazelles had been sufficiently admired, we again embarked, and steered toward Deliverance Bay. On reaching the entrance a grand salute of twelve shots welcomed us and our fair guest to Rockburg. Not pleased with the even number, however, Ernest insisted upon replying with thirteen guns, an odd number being, he declared, absolutely necessary for form's sake. As we neared the quay, Fritz and Jack stood ready to receive us, and with true politeness handed their mother and Jenny ashore. They turned and led the way to the house through the gardens, orchards, and shrubberies which lay on the rising ground that sloped gently upward to our dwelling. Jenny's surprise was changed to wonder as she neared the villa itself, its broad shady balcony, its fountains sparkling in the sun, the dovecots, the pigeons wheeling above, and the bright fresh creepers twined round the columns delighted her. She could scarcely believe that she was still far from any civilized nation, and that she was among a family wrecked like herself upon a lonely coast. My amazement, however, fully equaled that of my little daughter, when, beneath the shade of the veranda, I saw a table laid out with a delicious luncheon. All our china, silver, and glass had been called into requisition, and was arranged upon the spotless damask cloth. Wine sparkled in the decanters. Splendid pineapples, oranges, guavas, apples, and pears, resting on cool green leaves, lay heaped in pyramids upon the porcelain dishes. A haunch of venison, cold fowl, hams, and tongues occupied the ends and sides of the table, while in the centre rose a vase of gay flowers, surrounded by bowls of milk and great jugs of mead. It was indeed a perfect feast, and the heartiness of the welcome brought tears of joy into the lovely eyes of the fair girl in whose honour it had been devised. All were soon ready to sit down, 
and Jenny, looking prettier than ever in the dress for which she had exchanged her sailor suit, took the place of honour between the mother and me. Ernest and Franz also seated themselves, but nothing would induce Fritz and Jack to follow their example. They considered themselves our entertainers, and waited upon us most attentively, carving the joints, filling our glasses, and changing the plates, for, as Jack declared to Miss Montrose, the servants had all run away in our absence, and, for the next day or two, perhaps, we should be obliged to wait upon ourselves. When the banquet was over, and the waiters had satisfied their appetites, they joined their brothers, and with them displayed all the wonders of Rockburg to their new sister. To the house, cave, stables, gardens, fields, and boathouses, to one after the other did they lead her. Not a corner would they have left unnoticed, had not the mother, fearing they would tire the poor girl out, come to the rescue, and led her back to the house. On the following day, after an early breakfast, we started, while it was yet cool, for Falconhurst, and as I knew that repairs and arrangements for the coming winter would be necessary, and would detain us for several days, we took with us a supply of tools, as well as baskets of provisions, and other things essential to our comfort. The whole of our stud, excepting the ostrich, were in their paddocks near the tree, but Jack, saying that his mother and Jenny really must not walk the whole way, to the great amusement of the latter, leaped on hurry, and fled away in front of us. Before we had accomplished one quarter of the distance, we heard the thundering tread of many feet galloping down the avenue, and presently espied our motley troop of steeds being driven furiously toward us. Storm, Lightfoot, Swift, Grumble, Stentor, Arrow, and Dart were there, with Jack on his fleet two-legged courser at their heels. At his saddle-bow hung a cluster of saddles and bridles, the bits all jangling and clanking, adding to the din and confusion, and urging on the excited animals who thoroughly entered into the fun, and with tails in the air, ears back, and heels ever and anon thrown playfully out, seemed about to overwhelm us. We stepped aside to shelter ourselves behind trees from the furious onset, but a shout from Fritz brought the whole herd to a sudden halt, and Jack spurred toward us. "'Which of the cattle shall we saddle for you, Jenny?' he shouted. "'They're all as gentle as lambs, and as active as cats. Every one has been ridden by mother, and knows what a side-saddle means, so you can't go wrong.' To his great delight, Jenny quickly showed her appreciation of the merits of the steeds by picking out Dart, the fleetest and most spirited in the whole stud. The ostrich was then relieved of his unusual burden, the animals were speedily equipped, and Lightfoot bearing the baskets and hampers, the whole party mounted and trotted forward. Jenny was delighted with her palfrey, and henceforward he was reserved for her special use. The work at Falconhurst, as I had expected, occupied us for some time, and it was a week before we could again return to Rockburg. Yet the time passed pleasantly, for, though the young men were busy from morning to night, the presence of their new companion, her lively spirits and gay conversation, kept them in constant good humour. When the repairs were all finished, we remained yet a day or two longer, that we might make excursions in various directions to bring in poultry from woodlands, stores of acorns for the pigs, and grass, willows, and canes, 
to be manufactured during the winter into mats, baskets, hurdles, and hen-coops. Many a shower wetted us through during these days, and we had scarcely time to hurry back to Rockburg and house our cattle and possessions before the annual deluge began. Never before had this dreary season seemed so short and pleasant. With Jenny among us the usual feeling of weariness and discontent never appeared. The English language was quickly acquired by all hands, Fritz, in particular, speaking it so well that Jenny declared she could scarcely believe he was not an Englishman. She herself already spoke French, and therefore easily learned our native language, and spoke it fluently before we were released from our captivity. End of chapter 17, part 2. Read by Kara Schallenberg on August 7, 2009, in San Diego, California.